Acts chapter 18. We're going to start at verse 12. Let's read 12 through 17 together. This guy's name, I keep wanting to pronounce it Galileo, but it's not. It's Galileo, but if I say Galileo, forgive me. Uh, while Galileo, <laughs> I even say it different now, Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Galileo showed no concern, whatever. As Danny mentioned last week, Paul hung out in Corinthians for a year and a half. And I think it's interesting what leads up to that last verse, uh, chapter uh, or verse 11, where it says he stayed there a year and a half. Right before that, Jesus says, don't worry, you're going to be safe. No one's going to harm you. If I heard those words, I'd stick around too. I mean, because everywhere else Paul went, he was being beaten. He'd been thrown out of the city. He's being left for dead. And Jesus says, don't worry, no one's going to harm you. And then all of a sudden we see him settling down for a year and a half. I don't know if that came to play in it, but it probably would with me. If Jesus said, no one's going to hurt you, good, because I'm tired of people laying their hands on me and beating me and throwing rocks at me. I'll just settle down here, take a little sabbatical for a year and a half. And so there he is in Corinth for a year and a half. And all of a sudden, there's this stirring up we saw, or you guys saw last week, that Crispus, sounds like a potato chip, but that was the synagogue ruler's name, Crispus became a believer, and so now Sosthenes replaces him. And so now these Jews start to make this accusation against Paul. And I could just imagine Paul's like, okay, all right, Lord, remember what you said. You said no one's going to hurt me because now they're bringing him into court and they're going to take him before Galileo to try and make accusation against him. And I love the way they make this accusation about Paul as they bring him there they say, this man is persuading the people to worship God. Now, if you were to just stop there, it would be great. But then they add in ways that are contrary to the law. In other words, it's not like we're used to. But what I love about this is Paul persuaded people to worship God. The thing they didn't like, it wasn't according to the way they were used to. The way they wanted it to be done. But what Paul was doing was persuading people to worship God. What a powerful thing that is. To have such an evidence of what you are doing that people can bring you to a court to try you. Years ago, there was this bumper sticker, the saying going around, that if you were convicted for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And it was the idea of like, are you living your life so that there would be some conviction? Is there enough evidence to prove that you're living this life of following Jesus? Or could you get 
by with if they brought you into a court of law well is he a christian well we've got no evidence of it yeah he's never talked to anybody he's never really done anything that shows he was a christian okay you can let him go then well that's not the case with paul he was so prominent in his faith and belief and so persuasive that they brought him before Galileo, and Galileo wasn't going to get brought into this. this. He said, this is your own matter. You deal with it. And he kicks him out of the courtroom. And what's interesting is after he kicks him out of the courtroom, they ejected him. Verse 17, they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler. Now in the King James, it says that the Greeks turned on them, but really it's more accurately that they all turned on him, which means probably both the Jews and the Greeks. So this poor guy who takes Crispus's place is now being beaten because he's trying to get Paul into this courtroom to convict him or to bring evidence against him, and now he's beaten up. Poor guy, you know, whether it was the Greeks or the Greeks and the Jews, didn't matter to Sosthenes. He got beat. The interesting thing about Sosthenes is we see his name in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Guess who became a believer? Sosthenes. How cool is that? You know, first Crispus... And then Sosthenes, they just can't keep a ruler there. We saw last time that they met right next door to the synagogue. They went into the house, and they were meeting right next door to the synagogue. And so there's Sosthenes, all battered and bruised. And he goes into the synagogue, hobbling. Okay, you guys, we're going to worship the next door. They're all singing and praising God at this house. And he's going, oh, man, there's a lot of love and kindness here. You guys beat me up. Uh, I'm going over there. I'm going to go to that house because it's just not, not happening here. How many times in our lives do we have to come to the bottom before we look up? How many times do we get beaten down before our eyes are opened? How many of us have been bruised and beaten before we recognize, you know, what God says is true. And like Saul before him, when Jesus said, Saul, it's hard to, to kick against the goads. It, it's hard to fight against something that's not going to give. How many times have we tried to fight against what we know is true and we want to fight against it, we want to fight against it, and finally we get beat up, we get bruised, we come to this point where we're just beaten up and we say, okay, I surrender. God, what you said is true. I see it. And that's really what we see here happening with Sosthenes. So many times in our lives, it's that low period that God reaches into us and rescues us. It's that time when we, we just have had enough, when we've given up, when we've been hurt, when we've been crushed, when our hopes have been dashed, when we're just at the end, that we say, I can't do this anymore. I'll surrender my life to you now. That's happened to so many people I know of. They come to the end. Maybe it's a relationship that ends. You know, 
boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever, comes to an end, and all of a sudden there's just, I don't like this. I don't like where my life is at. I, I don't want to be here. I need a change. God, can you help me now? Maybe it's the loss of a job, financial situations. You lose your job. All of a sudden, oh my gosh, my world that I knew has now changed. What, and you realize that there's nothing in this world that is stable. God, you're the only one that is stable. I, I recognize that now. I was blinded by this circumstance. Maybe it's physical health. Maybe it's some other calamity situation that happens that in the moment of just darkness, despair, of hurt, of being beaten up by this world, we find the author of life, the one who's able to comfort, the one who's able to heal, the one who's able to restore, the one who's able to redeem and buy back our lives from their ruin. Powerful, powerful. And how many times do we see someone in a situation that's difficult and our immediate reaction is, God, get them out of that difficult situation. Get them a new job. Heal this. Strengthen, restore this, whatever. We want the situation to be better. But maybe, just maybe, God's saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm not done yet. I've got work to, to be done here in their hearts and in their lives. And if things just got better, they wouldn't have been to that place where they were aware of their need for me. And so a lot of times we think, God, why aren't you answering? Why aren't you doing this work? And we just don't see the big picture. That God is at work, and it's in those dark times, in those hard times, that God is reaching in to the depths of the human soul and saying, will you receive me now? Here in your darkest hour, will you see that I am your light? And so we got to be careful how we think. Because we want to get people out of their circumstances very quickly. We want them healed. We want everything to be better. We want things to go smoothly. I want them to get the money. I want them to, you know, whatever it is, I want them to get the job, get the girl, and be happy every after. I mean, I just, we want these things, but maybe that's not what's best. And maybe there's a work that God is doing that needs to be done, but first they have to be beaten. First they have to be broken. Maybe that's true for us as well. Maybe you're in a place like, God, when will this end? God's saying, you need to have me here. In your life right now, under these circumstances, you need to recognize that I am here. Because if I can be here in your dark hours, I can be everywhere all the time. And so we see here Sosthenes, the poor guy, gets beaten up, but what a great end of this story. When he's writing to the Corinthian church later, he goes, oh, and a brother Sosthenes, remember him? Yeah, he used to be the other ruler. I don't know who followed him. They kept running out of synagogue, you know, rulers. They kept coming to faith in Christ. But here Sosthenes, even though it's a, a low point here, we see in 1 Corinthians that he actually does become a brother. Verse 18, Paul goes on and he stayed on in Corinth for some time. And what's great about this is Jesus' words were true to Paul. 
Jesus said, no one's going to lay a hand on you. They tried. He was this close. He was in the court. I could see he almost opened his mouth and he didn't even need to. Because this other guy, Galeus, or Galeo, or whoever he is, this guy says, I don't need to hear this. Get out of here. Paul didn't even have to defend himself. Even though he's the verge, it's like, oh God, what are you, what's going to happen? Am I going to get beaten? I knew this was going to happen. Jesus said, no, I told you. I told you you weren't going to be beaten. And so he hangs out there for some time. Why not? I'm not going to get beaten here. I've got this, this kind of comfort zone, you know. It's like I got to get out of jail free card. Jesus told me. And so then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. <clears throat> Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Kencheria because of a vow he had taken. Now, we see again Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, their names appear in different orders. Earlier, it was Aquila and Priscilla, and that is important because in this culture, whoever is mentioned first is prominent in that specific area. What's interesting is Priscilla is a woman. I know Aquila doesn't sound like a masculine name, but Aquila is her husband, and apparently he's a hardworking guy. They make tents. Uh, Paul's going to go and work with them. But Priscilla and Aquila are, are with Paul on his journey, and they're prominent people, and she's an important person in the ministry and in the work of the Lord. And it's important to see this because a lot of times we have tended throughout history to underemphasize how women are used throughout Scripture. We saw that with Lydia previously, who brought Paul in, who was... Uh, prominent woman and who took Paul and helped out in the ministry. And we're going to see that here with Priscilla and Aquila both. And then Paul cuts his hair off because of a vow he had taken. And what's that about? Well, he had taken the Nazarite vow that you can find out in Deuteronomy. I think it's chapter 28, where you let your hair grow. You don't let a razor touch your head. You don't touch the fruit of the vine, any grape juice, wine. You don't drink anything. You don't defile yourself. In any way, it's consecrating yourself to the Lord. And Paul is doing this because he's on route to Jerusalem. Now, we've talked about previously how Paul did not defend that the Gentiles should have to follow the law. In fact, they said that you don't have to worry about those things. You don't have to be circumcised, these kinds of vows. Why did he do this? Well, again, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows that it's going to be helpful to him in ministering to the Jewish people because he still wants to go and minister to the Jews. He's still going to go into the synagogues, even though we saw earlier last chapter that he dusted off his cloak and he says, forget you guys, I'm tired of trying to persuade you, I'm going to the Gentiles. And they were upset about that. Well, he still has a heart for the Jewish people. He never lost that. And he still had that vow that I'm going to consecrate myself to God. And it's not a bad thing. It's not like he did something wrong. He was actually just showing what he believed. And setting himself aside did not allow himself to be contaminated. He could not touch uh, any uh, dead body that would defile him. He stayed away from drinking, didn't let a razor touch his head. But then when he shaved his head, it meant I've fulfilled my vow. And so everyone would see that his head was shaved and they said, oh, he fulfilled the Nazarite vow. And so now as he's going, they would have this opinion of him because of what he has done. 
And it's important to see that that's what Paul was doing. He was having uh, influence on these people, and so he was using those circumstances to gain that influence with them. In verse 19, it says, They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue, there he goes, and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to spend more time with him, he declined. Now, they wanted him to stay, but he declined. Now, Paul was an intriguing person. When he went, people wanted to hear him. He was a person of influence. Went into the synagogue, they wanted him to stay longer, but he couldn't. You know, some people, when they come, they're just interesting, and they just bring joy wherever they go. And some people, they bring joy whenever they go. You know, it's like, it's like good, they're gone. Oh, boy. But Paul was the kind of person, when he came in there, they were intrigued. What's this guy have to say? He was so full of knowledge. You ever been around someone who's just intelligent, that just has an, a lot of insight into different things, and you can listen to them for hours because they have such insight into so many things? Well, that's who Paul was. And he went in there for this period of time. Now, Ephesus was probably one of the largest economic cities at this time and in this region of Asia. It was a very prosperous area. And so it was very prevalent in this area. And so it was kind of a Mecca, an important area. Paul goes in there and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila. And then he goes into the synagogue and reasons with the Jews. They ask him to stay, but he declines. In verse 21, it says, But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus, if it's God's will. What a, what a great way to look at our lives, if it's God's will. How many of you are in a totally different place than you thought you would be two years ago? I mean, I, I could not imagine I would be where I'm at two years ago. If I were to make plans two years ago, it would not have been what I, what's happened in my life now. But if God wills, you never know how God's going to work. If God wills, this is what's going to happen. If God's will, we'll be meeting at the rec center on May 17th. If God wills, you know, who knows what's going to happen between now and then. Only God knows. There's only one person that didn't say, if God wills, I'll be back. And that was Jesus, because it is God's will. He says, I will come again. It is God's will. It's a done deal. What a great thing. It's not, well, if God wills, I'll come back for you guys. That's like, what do you mean? <laughs> I sure hope he wills. No, it's a sure thing. If God wills, Paul says, I'll be back. And so he leaves and sets sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, there's that seaside village, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Now that went up, that means he went to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always referred to as going up to Jerusalem. It didn't matter if you were coming from the north, the south, the east or west, you always went up to Jerusalem because of its elevation as well as because of what it is prominently in the Jewish mind. And so he went up. And then he went down. Now, this is kind of interesting because in these two verses, both 22 and 23, he went down to Antioch, and after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from that place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. In those two verses, there's 1,500 miles 
That's a lot of traveling in just two verses. And this short little point, he just went up, he went, he went say hello to the church, and then left. And then he went down to Antioch, because Antioch, that's where, that's where his family was. That was I mean, Familia, is down in Antioch. That's kind of where his home base was. It's interesting that Jerusalem is not mentioned in any depth. Because as we saw earlier, there's actually a little bit of, I don't know, I would call it a, a healthy tension that took place between Paul and the brothers in Jerusalem. I say healthy tension because a lot of times we think tension is always a bad thing. You know, Paul had this way of talking about grace and emphasizing it is by grace that we are saved, through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. And then you've got James, one of the brothers from Jerusalem, saying, faith without any works is dead. You show me your faith, by the things that you do. And, and you've got this, wow, you know, so just when you're getting a little too comfortable in your faith and grace, comes James and say, hey, don't forget. Oh, oh yeah. And, and it's a good thing. Is one right and one wrong? No, they're both right, but they're, they're different personalities. They're different backgrounds, and they're different ways of portraying things. And a lot of times we're like, well, I like this church because it's this way, and I like this. Is one right and one wrong? No. Sometimes there's just healthy tension that comes between different places and different ministries that keeps each other on their toes, that keeps everyone honest, that helps you to see things in a, a broader aspect than just your own way. And it, it was a good thing that was taking place, but he just went up there, said, hey guys, it's me, just saying hello, giving my kudos to you guys, I'm out of here, see you later, I'm going back to Antioch, that's where my bros are, you know, I'm, I'm heading there. And he went up there, went down, just kind of made his appearance, said hello, and left again. It's important to recognize that because a lot of times we have this attitude where everything has to be done the way we like it to be done. And it's just not the case. There, God ministers to people of all persuasions. Some people, you know, would find me extremely boring. <laughs> Hopefully you're not one of them, uh, you know, but if, if you're not, you know, hallelujahing and if you're not jumping up and if I don't have a, a, a kerchief and sweating the, you know, sweat off my brow and the Lord and, you know, if I'm not talking like that, people are like, oh man, he's dead. He's, he's not with it, man. He's not really preaching. Yeah, if he's preaching, there's got to be sweat coming out. There's got to be change of volume. They got to, I got to feel it. Do you feel it? Do you with me? You know, <laughs> And then some people, I'm over the top. You know, you're, you're too, you know, just free in the things that you say. You need to tone it down a little bit. There's different things for different people. Doesn't mean one's right, one's wrong. God uses people. Have you noticed that there's a lot of variety? I mean, you just look around you. There's a whole lot of variety here. Let's face it, if it wasn't for Jesus, a lot of us would not be hanging together. <laughs> we just wouldn't. But there's variety in the body of Christ. God has created us unique. He's made us all different. And what a great thing that is. And so Paul went up to Jerusalem, didn't stay there too long, went back down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he traveled all over again, 1,500 miles in just these two verses. A lot of journeying. Going back, this is actually now, especially verse 23, starting his third missionary journey. 
he'd gone and now he'd gone back on the second time, visited the churches he started and then he's doing it again. He's kind of going back and visiting all the places and ministering and establishing the churches where he was, strengthening all the disciples. What a great thing that is to strengthen those who are following Jesus. You know, as disciples, we need to recognize we need to be strengthened, don't we? I need it. Boy, I need to be strengthened. There's times when I'm just out of gas. I've got no power. I've got no ability to really want to even move forward. I'm just done. It's like I don't want to do anything else. It's funny. I've been trying to get in shape and, and work out, you know, to lose weight. And I found that I lost more weight just going to sleep and waking up than I did going to the gym. <laughs> And it's like, this is a new diet, the sleep diet, you know. And sometimes we just want to sleep. And it's especially when we're depressed. It's like, I don't want to get up. I don't want to face the day. I don't want to think about tomorrow. I just want to go to bed and get it done with. And sometimes you, like myself, need to be strengthened. As followers of Jesus, we need to be strengthened. I've heard people say, if you're a follower, you shouldn't, you know, there's no burnout. There's no, you know, getting weak. You're, you're in Christ. You've got all the power of God. It's like, I'm sorry. I need to be strengthened. Sometimes I just need to be strengthened. And I don't think I'm different. I think we all need that. I think that's why Paul was doing this. He was strengthening the brothers. And Paul received strength from others as well. Now, verse 24. Meanwhile... A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Now here we see Apollos comes onto the scene. We don't have a whole lot of information about this guy, but everything that we read about him is very powerful. It, it leaves an impact. In fact, in Corinthians, Paul says that there's a group that says, I'm of Apollos, and some are saying, oh, well, I'm, of I'm of Paul, and I'm of Cephas, I'm of Peter. In other words, they're all taking their favorite quote, pastor, and they're saying, I, I follow his ways, and I follow his ways. And Paul says, you know, did Apollos die for you? Did Paul die for you? You know, all these ideas of who you belong for, you, you belong to Jesus. We're all just part of the same body. But Apollos is a very dynamic person, even as it says here that he was learned man and with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. The guy had a lot on the ball. He's very educated. He was very articulate. He was able to speak convincingly. He spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. However, he only had a little bit of information because he taught regarding John's, or what does it say? It says he taught, he knew only the baptism of John. What does that mean? He only knew about the idea of repentance. Remember, John's baptism was that of repentance. I baptize you with water. There's one coming after me who will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. He knew about the idea of repenting, but he didn't know all about what Jesus had done. 
He'd heard about Jesus. He knew about repenting, but that was it. In other words, he had so much information and then that was all he had. Even though he was wise, even though he had a lot of fervor, even though he could speak, he only knew so much. And what's great about this is when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, and where did they hear him? They heard him in the synagogue, which is interesting because there is not a division yet between what we know of Judaism and Christianity. They are still working in the synagogues. That's where they went and heard the scriptures because that's the only scriptures they had at this time. As things would become more divisive and persecution would take place, there, would gonna, there was going to be more and more of a split. But also that was where the mission field was. Those were the people they were reaching. Those are the ones they had most in common with, were those who were involved with Judaism. They went where they were familiar, where home was, basically. And as they went there, they heard this guy, Apollos, and he knew about Jesus, but he only knew so much. And what's great is they called him, and it says in, in the King James that they pulled him aside, and it talks about them bringing him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately or more accurately, more perfectly. So he knew so much, but these two tent makers knew a little bit more. Now, I love this because here's this guy. We don't know his background, but he's educated, obviously. He's very intelligent. He's very articulate. And I don't think of a tent maker as being those things. But here now, Priscilla and Aquila hear him, invite him to their home, and they give him more. What it tells me, a couple things, and I think I'm going to talk about this more on Sunday, it tells me first something about Apollos, that he was willing to learn. That he didn't go into them and said, you know, you guys, what are you telling me? I, I, I'm, don't you know who I am? I, I'm learned and thorough in knowledge in the scriptures. It says so there in Acts 18. You know, I... I he doesn't say that. He goes and he's able to receive from these tent makers. And it also shows that these two tent makers weren't afraid to share. It also says that Apollos wasn't afraid to share what he knew. He at least shared what he knew. And what a great thing that is to be able to at least talk about the things that we know. And that's exactly what he did. And so they gave him more information about who Jesus was so that he could communicate more adequately. And when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples where there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. They helped him a little bit, and it went a long, long way. Isn't that a great thing? To see someone you talk to, you share a little bit, and then they just take off. And then Apollos was a great help to them. You know, he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate. That's just a mouthful. He vigorously refuted. I mean, it just has so much energy involved with that. And then it's in public debate. This guy was good. 
This guy was good with words. He was the kind of guy who could go into a place and win the argument. And he was a great help to the church. And he persuaded them, proving from the scriptures, that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus the Christ. We need to remember what Christ means. It means Messiah, anointed one. So many times we think of it as the last name. You know, here's Mr. Jesus Christ, you know, but it's, it's not his last name, it's his title. It's who he is. The Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, the one you've been waiting for. Proving from the scriptures that this is the one you've been waiting for. What an encouragement that is for us. That we would do the same. That we would be able to prove to others that Jesus is the anointed one. He's the one you're waiting for. And here again, to the Jews, they used the scriptures. This is the things that they were familiar with. He proved from that point who Jesus was. We saw Paul in Athens prove to the Gentiles through their own poets and prophets that Jesus was the one they'd been waiting for, the one who was going to judge the world, proving it by rising from the dead. When we were in North Carolina, my son had to check into this one area, and one of his uh, the guys who was there in the barracks with him was going to check in, and so I was driving them to this place where they were going to check in. And this guy, as we started talking, you know, he didn't know who I was. He just started saying all kinds of things. I'm trying to remember exactly what he said. He said, oh, I saw that Bill Maher video, you know, about religious, I forget the name of the video, but it's basically kind of, you know, slamming Christianity and, and God and the major religions of the world. And he started saying some things about it, and then he said something, well, you know, that's coming from me whose parents were pastors, you know, and he didn't know. I'm, I'm walking with him, you know, and I'm like, well, well, I guess, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a pastor too, you know, and then he kind of like, oh, you know, what have I been saying, you know, all this time. And after that point, you know, he still wanted to throw out these little things. Well, you know, what about this and what about that? And he had all these ideas that he just kind of, kept wanting to almost dig in, like, what about this? What about that? And, and I remember at one point I just thought, part of me just wanted, you know, Samuel, stay away from this guy. First of all, he's been in here four years and he's never got past private. You know, he's been in trouble all the time. It's like, this guy's bad news. Just stay away from him. But then part of me was convicted too because I, I really... I forget what I said. I said something to him. I basically kind of shocked him by saying, well, yeah, I'm a pastor. And he said, well, I grew up in, you know, in this religious home where, you know, my mother was extreme Pentecostal and my father was a Baptist. And so, you know, I was very oppressed, you know. And I think I said something, well, you know, some oppression is good. You know, there's people I've wanted to kill. That's a good thing I oppressed my feelings, you know, don't you think? Something like that, you know. And I was just, it was a little blunt. Um, trying to make a point, you know, that, you know, not all oppression or oppressing things are bad. Some, some things need to be oppressed. 
Some of our emotions and feelings should be oppressed if you want to live a healthy life. Otherwise, you know, if you don't oppress any feelings, you could end up dead. But I felt convicted because I felt like, you know, I really didn't want to dialogue with this guy. I just wanted to shut him up. And I felt like I did that pretty well, but it wasn't really inviting a conversation or, or being someone who I could talk with. And so we drove again at another time, and he again started sharing some things and talking about this and that. And then I started engaging him in the conversation. And then we were outside my son's room probably for about 40 minutes just talking. And I was able to talk to him about a lot of things, and he mentioned these things. Well, you know, I don't believe in the Bible because, you know, no, there's no proof that Pontius Pilate ever existed, only in the Bible. And it's like, well, no, that's not true. There's archaeological evidence that has a column that was found in, you know, the finding that has Pontius Pilate's name written on the column. You can Google it and find it. And, you know, you don't put someone's name on a column if they don't exist, you know. And then he said, well, you know, I don't believe in God because when my grandfather was sick and dying, you know, he was, I prayed, and Jesus says, you know, if you ask and say it'll happen, and it didn't happen, so I know it's not true. And I got to talk to him about, you know, well, maybe you're not seeing that in the right context. Maybe, you know, your idea of what should have been is not really accurate. And I actually got to challenge him. You know, a lot of times what I have found is people find excuses not to believe because they really just want to live another way. And I'm not saying that's you, but maybe it is. And I felt conviction that, yeah, I think it is. And what was great is through this time, I was able to share with him, Jesus is the one you need. I was able to dialogue with him in a way that I felt was at least understandable he kept trying to shock me with things, you know, what about this? What about this? And it was like, you know, I had four teenagers. You're not going to shock me, you know. And I was able to communicate with him that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one you need. It's up to him to make the decision. And it looks like he's going down a road of hard knocks. But he knew a lot. And maybe he'll be one of those ones like Sosthenes that has to get beat up. Maybe he'll be one of those ones that has to take the blows before he comes to that place and says, you know, Jesus is the one I need. And the question, I guess, to each of us here tonight is, have we recognized that, that Jesus is the one we need? Or what do we have to go through before we will recognize that? What is it going to take for us to see the truth? The truth about who Jesus is and the truth about who we are and that we need him. Are we going to be persuaded? Is it going to just take a dialogue? <coughs> or is it going to take a beating from life? God is going to prove himself true. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can either bow now or you'll bow later. But you will 
bow. What do you want to do? When do you want to bow? You can make it easy on yourself or you can take a beating. But Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the one we need. And we need to recognize that. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful that you are at work within our lives, that through the good times and through the hard times, you are at work, you are there, and that you don't leave us when we complain. You don't give up on us when we're stubborn and non-believing or even when we're against you. That you remain faithful. You remain true. And just like Sosthenes came to a place where he believed, Lord, though it took a beating, he finally saw the truth. Lord, I, I know that one day we will all see the truth, even the worst skeptic will bow before you. But I pray, Lord, we would see the truth right now and right where we're at, wherever it is, Lord, wh whether it's good situations, whether it's hard situations, might we recognize you are the one we need. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. God, might we recognize that. And I pray, Father, that we would not only understand that, but like Priscilla and Aquila, be willing to share that with others, to add to what they know. Father, I pray you would help us in that endeavor to be able to give of ourselves to others the things that you've given to us and further your kingdom and your work. Thank you again for your words, Lord. I pray that they would be an encouragement to us. Thank you for meeting us where we're at, Lord. We do love you and pray you would continue to pour out your blessings, Lord, just on the work that you are doing in our lives and those that we are reaching out to you. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness, your goodness. We love you, Lord, and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.